This is a podcast from Partnerships for Wellbeing. Hello and welcome to this edition of Ways to Wellbeing, coming to you from Will Street Studios in Inverness. I'm Jess Zazinski and my guest this time around is a woman who everyone has been telling me is an absolute must for this podcast. Here in the Highlands, she's a force to be reckoned with, a tireless community campaigner, someone who has been making good things happen for families and communities, and especially for parents of children with special needs. Most recently, she's been watching a new respite centre take shape out at Smithton. Her name, of course, is Elsie Normington, and I'm delighted to say she joins me here in the studio. Welcome, Elsie. Thank you. Now, Elsie, I missed a few things off that list, and I think one of the more important things is that you're a mother and a grandmother. Yes. And we're going to hear how parenthood changed your life, but first tell us about the, the Haven Centre, for those who don't know anything about it, and what are you up to over at Smithton? Okay, so the Haven Centre is a long-term dream that I've had, that uh, effectively I've been working on it for 10 years on a voluntary basis to really see a special centre for children and young people who have got severe learning disabilities and complex needs and to support the needs of their family as well. So it's quite a big site. It has a large indoor and outdoor play centre. It has three respite plants for overnight care. Uh, we also have a generic community coffee shop for anyone to come and get their coffee and cake and lunch and all that. And then we also have a community garden that will support um, young adults with learning disabilities who can manage to do some of the tasks. So it's a big project. It's um, it's over £4 million in worth. And uh, I'm thrilled to say that the guys are there working away. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've certainly seen some video of uh, making a lot of good progress there. What kind of shape is and what kind of time scale are we talking about? For okay, so the uh, we, we contracted with Compass, which is a local Highland builder. We're delighted to be working with them. So we contracted with them in November of last year and then the first spade in the ground was in March. So they are very hopeful it will be completed by the end of April, kind of beginning of May time. And inflation impacting that in any way? Well, there has been some increase, but, you know, we're, we're very hopeful that, you know, we'll achieve our target and be able to get the whole thing up and running. I'm sure, <laughs> otherwise you'll be out with that, putting the hat round again. That's it, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, that, that sounds uh-huh. uh, fabulous. Now, um, our paths have crossed uh, in the past, but I'll come to that in a wee minute. Okay. Because I've been reading the book that you published a few years ago, uh-huh. um, The Silent Doorbell. Yes. Now, Tell us about that title. It's very, it's very emotive title, that, isn't it? It is. And I felt that I really came to invent that term way back when my son Andrew was 10 years old. He has severe learning difficulties and complex needs. And I felt hugely isolated by that experience, and especially when Andrew went into special school because he was picked up in a taxi, off to school and back home in a taxi. So I never met any other families, and Andrew was behind his garden gate, and I just felt the doorbell didn't ring for him. So I began to talk about this experience of the silent doorbell. Yeah. I mean, the book is about how your life changed when Andrew was born and when you discovered that he had these kind of needs and he wasn't developing in the way that some other children were, um, there must have been times when you thought, you know, why me? Well, it was a very dark time for a number of years, Jeff. it really was, and I cried millions of tears, I have to Mm -hmm. confess. 
And um, I just couldn't get my head around the fact that Andrew was not the son that I thought I had given birth to. And as life was running its course, the whole seizure disorder was running its course. It seemed like everything was just getting worse and worse. And it felt like life was very dark for me. And um, I would often get up in the middle of the night and just sit in the living room and, and I would pray. I'm a very um, active Christian. I would sit and pray to God and and, and there's a verse in Psalm 46 that says, God is my refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And I would often just sit and say that over and over again and say, God, please be my refuge and support because I just can't get through this on my own. And that went on for a number of years until Andrew was around 10 when he moved into special school. Yeah. And it was around that time that I began to have a complete emotional change in my life and began to turn things around. And your life turned around, your, your life went in a completely different direction at that point. Well, it did really because I had been teaching piano and, you know, I love I love singing and playing the piano and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And I thought I would be doing that for the rest of my life. But I remember it was around the time when I always read a wee thought for the day, every day, just to set me up for the day. And this particular thought one day was about you can choose to be better or bitter in yeah. life. And I just really believe that was quite an epiphanal moment for me, a very spiritual moment for me that I decided I am not going to be bitter, I am going to be better. And really began to pray that God would turn this whole thing around for me and I could be better as a result of what happened. And that is exactly my life story, it's my testimony, that I believe that God came and nursed me back to wholeness and wellness. And I think through it, I've really learned, Jeff, that, you know, things happen in life to most, most of us, I would imagine, all different kinds of things happen to us. But I really believe it's about what we do with what happens. Mm-hmm. It's about our response to what happens and then how we can actually turn that for good. Now, I mentioned our, our, our past kind of crossed, uh-huh. um, although I might be slightly out of sync on this one, but it was when I first came across SNAP, and I was working for the BBC at the time, and we were approached to for, for SNAP to take part in a project that we had called Let's Do the Show Right Here, and, and SNAP put on the show up at Culloden Academy in, in support of raising funds for Snappy Suppers. Uh-huh. And it was the first time I knew anything about SNAP and a lot of the parents came along with their children and for me, probably, because I was a young parent myself at that time, first time I realised the importance of not letting people become isolated, letting families get together, letting the children have the kind of experience of having, you know, a happy meal uh, in a kind of a way uh, uh, as well. But that that notion of becoming isolated because your child has different needs is something that, that really struck with you, isn't it? Something that, that's what made you begin to take action. Absolutely. And I think if we hit the nail on the head, because all of us need to socialise and we're not created to be alone in life. We're not created to be an island on this planet Earth. I believe that we're created for fellowship, whatever age and stage we are in life. And I do feel that children and young people and in fact all people with learning disabilities, they should have social opportunities, but they should be shaped and moulded 
appropriately to their needs. And so I, I'm very passionate about specialist facilities because, you know, when I look at Andrew, Andrew is now in his late 30s, but he wants to be with people like himself. Yeah. People that he can relate with and enjoy a good old dance and a sing and all the stuff that he enjoys doing. But it may not be how you and I may do it. Mm-hmm. And I think it really taught me just the absolute importance of, okay, they need to socialise, so let's create these opportunities where mm-hmm. they can socialise together. And again, that's what really jumped out of the book for me, you creating these equivalent experiences all the time. So when Andrew was leaving school, mm-hmm. for instance, you wanted to mark that moment for him. You wanted to make sure that he knew, just like other children leaving school, that this was a kind of rites of passage moment kind of thing. And you went to great efforts to create that kind of moment for him, didn't you? Well, I really did because, you know, Andrew has severe learning difficulties. I mean, mentally, in many ways, he's like a preschooler in his thinking. And I remember the experience at Drummond School, and I have to speak really highly of the school because I really think it's a wonderful special school. But the children that actually got work experiences were the more able ones. And I really wanted Andrew to realise that he would not be in school for the rest of his life, where he was nice and comfortable and went in his taxi every day and so um, I had heard about the, the Black Beck Croft and as a result we managed to get a work placement there, Helen Bull, she was the teacher in the school who headed up the transitional process and I spoke to her about it and as a result Andrew got his work placement at Black Beck and it was a bit of a, a carry on really trying to get someone to support him because the school couldn't send anyone to support him and then social work was telling me well you've got direct payments but you know, he's, he's still in school yet, so how can we use direct payments for that? And I really had to fight for it, but eventually, the social worker, I think, just to really keep me quiet, she agreed that I could use the direct payments to pay somebody to allow Andrew to go and have this work placement. And I'll never forget, you know, the two powerful words that Andrew spoke when he was completing his work placement. I said to him, and did you enjoy working at the farm? And he nodded his head because he doesn't speak much. And I said to him, what did you enjoy about and he said working hard and that was a really wonderful moment for me in time because I actually realised the penny had dropped that Andrew wanted to work which was a really wonderful moment because I then felt he was now being prepared to leave school Yes, he began to tell people I've left school or I'm leaving school So it's it's a great story and a great a great, a great bit of imagination from you to, to work out that uh, experience from. Now you've touched on something there which um, which kind of made me smile a bit, but this idea of the agencies who are supposed to help, uh-huh. not really connecting with each other, you know, and you know these, these gaps in provision and these gaps in the rules and things like that, it must be, I don't know if it's still frustrating, but it must have been tremendously frustrating at the time. Well, it very much was at the time because in some ways I felt a bit of a catalyst because I'm a, I like to be a go-getter. I like to get up and make things happen. And I was one of the first who had direct payments for a teenager when it came on board. And, you know, it was actually working very well. We were employing staff and they could take Andrew out and look after him and George and I could go out and stuff like that. But when it came to this work placement, because it seemed to be crossing boundaries of adult social care versus being in education, it felt like nobody could make it work. 
And, you know, I, I just couldn't believe the hassle I had trying to get this thing to work when essentially in special school, young people can stay till their 19th birthday. So it was, Andrew was an adult, and yet it was still an education. And I just had to really fight and fight until I won through in the end. But it was quite a frustrating process, you know. What about these days? Because we, we hear a lot about um, uh, children with needs being put into mainstream education, and we hear a lot about the lack of support in the schools as well. Do you, have a, do you take a view on any of that? Well, I do have quite a strong view on that, as I'm sure you could imagine, Jeff, because I'm very pro-specialist. You know, I really believe that if children, particularly those that have got more severe needs and have particular kind of nursing care needs, behavioural needs, etc., I don't believe they should be a mainstream school. Mm -hmm. To me, they should be in a much more sheltered environment with specialist teaching, specialist social care, um, services that can really support that child to the best because what can actually happen is, is just masses and masses of frustration evolve and then eventually the whole thing can blow up so much and that can affect the whole of the class and I really feel great sympathy for teachers nowadays because they're expected to have their class into reading groups for example and then you've got this couple of children over here who have got severe difficulties that they'll never read how are they supposed to adapt the curriculum for all of those children and meet all of their needs? I feel that's quite an impossible task. But can you sympathise with the parents who perhaps, I mean, uh, maybe I'm putting thoughts into their heads, but who perhaps are in a bit of denial about the needs of the children and think, I just want my kid to be in the same school as their pals. I can understand that perspective and that longing and that desire. You just want to rub it out and make it all okay that your child is just like everybody else, but they're not. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I would just say that the sooner you come to that place of acceptance, the better. Because although you push and push for your child to be included in a mainstream environment, even through secondary school, in the end, when young people leave secondary school, they go off to university, they go and get a job, they go out dancing and drinking and anything else that they want to be doing. And where's your son or daughter? He or she is at home. Yeah. So let's come back to you now, because at the end of your book, there's an awful lot of reflection from you, and you you sit and think, I wonder how my life would have been different if Andrew had turned out differently, um, and you kind of ponder about what he may have done and what, what your life might have been. Do you still have those thoughts? or because I, th I think most people from the outside would look at you as an amazing success success story. You know, you've achieved so much and you continue to achieve so much. Uh, do you think perhaps it was meant to be for you? It's really quite a difficult question in a way. Is it meant to be? Um, because, you know, it's like two sides of a coin, you know. I believe that every child is a gift from God, mm -hmm. regardless of their social background, their abilities, um, and so on. And yet, on the other hand, we have children who have got all these disabilities. And really, it's about how you marry that together. That, well, was it meant to be? I just have to accept the fact that, well, for now, it was meant to be. I don't understand the reason for that being meant to be, 
but it's how I can make the most of that situation of how it meant to be. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I suppose there's a bit of me in my question, which is when that haven centre is finished, mm-hmm. when the families are getting the benefit of that and the kids as well, and the community generally, yes. and you turn around and look at that, no doubt with some sense of pride and achievement, and think, would this have happened without me? And would this have happened had I not experienced what I've experienced? I very much doubt if it would have happened, to mm. be honest. Because I was really happy doing my piano teaching and all my little mm. kids learning to play the piano. You know, I never imagined that my journey would take the direction that it's taken. Mm-hmm. But I think part of the journey of life is always being ready when that wind of change blows across your life. Are we willing to step up to the plate and say, yes, I'll do it? Or do we just sit back and think, oh, somebody else will do it? And I have a willingness in my heart to step up, to speak out and do it. Yeah. Is that going to be a legacy in that centre or is there something else after that? (laughs) Well, who knows? We'll have to wait and see. I think you've got some secret plans. (laughs) We'll have to wait and see, shall we? (laughs) Elsie, there's so much more we can talk about. Uh, I just want to congratulate you. You are the guest we should have had many weeks ago. You are the inspiring figure that everyone says you are. So thank you very much for being our guest. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Jenny. Ways to Wellbeing is produced in Inverness, Scotland by Partnerships for Wellbeing, a registered charity. To find out more about our services, go to p4w.org.uk.